as Sayadaw mentioned <clears throat> last evening, with our Dhamma talk topic uh, this evening, we'll be exploring one particular aspect of the third domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, citta nupasana. In relationship to how unwholesome and afflictive uh, emotions manifest as an aspect of dukkha. We'll also be looking at the process of transformation and relinquishment of these afflictive states of mind. And beginning with uh, a quote from, uh, I don't know who it's from. (laughs) I found it, uh, read it some time ago, but don't know the origin of it. Pain, like pleasure, is an inevitable and temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. Some years ago, I attended a meeting of uh, Dhamma teachers that included um, many of the various uh, teachers from many of the various Buddhist lineages. And in one of our uh, discussions, the question of what is Buddhism came up. The Dalai Lama, who was one of the guests of honor uh, at this meeting, said that Often his response uh, uh, to this question is that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on uh, to define a realization, liberation, as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This uh, definition of Nibbana, of realization, being the complete purity of the mind, the complete purity of the heart, has been described as the mind and the heart and the heart of an arahant. In hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak of this, there was a sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence in truly believing that this is possible. In the many times that I've sat with Sada Upandita and when I've practiced with Pawak Sadao, both of these very venerable teachers have spoken of this same possibility in similar ways over and over and over again. And of course in the suttas, the Buddha also often speaks of this aspect of liberation, this aspect of freedom in this same way. As our own confidence grows and as it deepens, we too begin to get some sense that this is our possibility. 
in its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so, here you are making physical and mental effort in the service of awakening, in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in retreat and in our life outside of retreat, we come to know, we we come to directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and our mental efforts, certain states of mind increase, others decrease. And we begin to find that at least to some degree, we've let go of what is unwholesome. We've let go at least to some degree of what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourselves, and what's harmful to others. And we begin to find that the wholesome states of mind, the wholesome states of heart, are more and more our experience, and they're more and more readily available, manifesting more and more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and the practices takes a deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of the here and now grows, develops, along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals. And so some words from the Buddha in relationship to this from the Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it, to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom, metta, and compassion of the Buddha. The mind, the heart of a Buddha sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages, exhorts those who are heading towards suffering to take care, to take great care and to pay attention rather than judging them or condemning them. And the heart, the mind of a Buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering rejoices for them. 
this approach to life, this way of seeing, can be a great inspiration, inspiring feelings of self-confidence within us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years in my own practice, there have been times when I've experienced various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teachings and in relationship to the practice. And when I've been able to be really honest and humble about it with, about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's been because I was afraid that I wasn't really capable of actualizing the teachings through my practice. And I've also found out that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and my gratitude for the teachings as well as for my own practice has deepened and has grown. The Venerable Pawak Sayadaw says that we must always approach things with the attitude that we can be successful. That this is what the Buddha taught. Once uh, in a practice interview with him, I went in and said, this is just too hard. And Pawak, uh, looking at me with a great kindness in his eyes and a kind of light laughter simply said, no it isn't. (laughs) And it's true. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha, are filled with this approach to practice actually. This evening we'll specifically explore a few of the difficult or the afflictive uh, states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore, as I mentioned, some of the ways that the Buddha uh, encourages us or exhorts us to work with them in practice in light of the purification that the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation uh, of of mind and heart uh, speaks about, the liberation from afflictive emotions. We could say that it's as though all of us have skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha, before he was a Buddha, uh, wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and from confusion, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experience of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from some idealistic or some philosophical stance. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new angers or fear, resistance, judgments, doubts, sadness, grief, longings, strong desires, attachments, confusions, pains. It's a long list. 
there's more of course from our present life's experience and carried on from many many lifetimes experience some of these we may have mindfully met and seen with an open mind an open heart some of them we've ignored or hidden away in our practice our practice is to open to whatever is there whatever is present whatever arises including what may have been tucked away the so-called skeletons in the closet when they appear and i think it's important to remember the when they appear it's not about dredging up or uh, digging up afflictive states of mind maybe there are some people who seem to be able to find a true happiness a, a true ease of being without ever letting out the skeletons and i say well that's just fine for them but actually i have never ever met anyone like this i don't know if any of you have but i think it's maybe rare if it doesn't exist really most of us need to discover the skeletons so to say in order to find a really true depth of happiness in our life or we'll just continue to live in delusion thinking that we can be happy but never really truly being so meditation allows us to open the closet and to look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or that maybe we've hidden from or judged as unacceptable and buried it away the skeletons in the closet that we've been maybe hauling around often unconsciously unwittingly maybe for a long long time Stephen Mitchell's version of the myth of Sisyphus speaks about this in uh, a particular metaphorical way and this is his version of the myth of Sisyphus We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home. practice gives us some very powerful tools the tools of concentration mindfulness investigation metta compassion 
each of which help us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind and from the heart of kindness, acceptance, and patience, enabling us to see clearly and to be able to go home. As we know, this is really such an amazing process. Learning to open to our experience from the very deepest center of our being. Learning to see the immediacy of experience with no extra baggage attached. Just to see what's right here, right now. And begin to realize that it really doesn't have to control us. We notice, we note, this is how it is in this present moment. The breath, the body, feelings, the various colorations, the moods of the mind are like this, in this moment. With concentration and mindfulness grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire and attachment, sadness, irritation, judgment, worry, disappointment, really have no more control over us. We begin to realize that the reactive habitual need to maybe analyze it over and over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of it, or to fix it, or trying to ignore it, or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves with a seeming equanimity, the oh it's really nothing attitude. We begin to realize that none of these reactive habitual patterns really serve us. When we begin to meet and see these reactive habit patterns with the heart of kindness, the door to clear seeing or seeing through as I like to uh, express it is opened. Things are as they are. The beginning of a healthy response rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions is born out of clearly connecting and a a non-judgmental knowing. This is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms with all of the boxes opened, so to say, and the skeletons uncovered. And we find that we can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past, be it 20 years ago or maybe just a few moments ago, continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying from the time of the Buddha that goes like this. 
Rain soddens what is kept wrapped up, but never soddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. Bhantikunaratana, the Sri Lankan monk who wrote Mindfulness in Plain English, uh, has this to say about what we're exploring right now. View all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and to grow. Don't run from them. Don't condemn yourself or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem? Great. (laughs) More grist for the mill. Rejoice. Dive in. Investigate. So we sit quietly and watch ourselves. All kinds of things come to the surface. Really, the mind, uh, at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must come to the surface and be accepted, clearly seen, and investigated. And, as you know, this takes time. We can't hurry it. We can't force it and hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere with great patience, or growing patience, maybe eventually great patience. And the rest takes care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear. So this can be kind of a vicious circle. And so we work, we practice, with great gentleness and kindness and a deep patience to and to, for and with ourselves. And through this process of opening to and relinquishing, relinquishing our conditioned, habituated patterns of suffering, relinquishing our addictions of mind, The great Indian uh, spiritual teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj, said this. He said, don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad but don't let yourself be submerged by what happens.
I'd like to take a bit of a look uh, now at what I think is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is so directly connected to the suffering we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. The suffering that's inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. And Sayadaw spoke about this a bit last night. Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another because of this, that. Everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of fear, anger, worry, judgment, doubt, strong desire, attachment, etc. And yet we so often believe that the opposite of this truth is the reality of things. Taking our experience and things to be as though very solidly and singularly in place and here to stay, which will always eventually create suffering for ourselves and very possibly for others. We grasp onto the past and we project into the possible future and solidify, often solidify both in our mind. And yet, life just simply keeps on flowing, keeps on rolling along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it too is conditional, totally relative a totally relative contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. Here in Taos, during the midsummer and through the early fall, we have what we call our monsoon season. And in this big open sky of Taos, we often have huge arches of rainbows appearing often even double rainbows during this monsoon season. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. Just the right amount of moisture in the air, the atmosphere. The angle of the light being just right. And then of course one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes so quickly everything in life, including ourselves, meaning all of our experiences of body and mind are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and in and of themselves empty. It's so very obvious with rainbows but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing and sticky mental and physical phenomena. 
our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of the mind as permanent, as unchanging, and identifying with any of these as mine, me, I, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Anything that we cling to, from material objects to the various permutations of the states of hope and fear, will cause us some degree of suffering. And of course the other side of the same coin being the pushing away, avoiding, resisting, that relationship will cause us some degree of suffering. Our practice is about present moment awareness. Really, truly being in the present. This present moment and this present moment and this one just as it is right now, right now, right now. It's actually not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last, or the desire for this moment to be different that causes us to suffer. The truth is that this moment, however it is, changes, disappears, dissolves in this moment, and on and on and on it goes. All of which we can see if we take a careful and close look. Liberation isn't based on anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided or ignored. We can't be free from something that we don't see, as I've mentioned, or something that we ignore. I think, as we all know, in English, we have a saying that says, ignorance is bliss. Well, the fact is that ignorance isn't bliss. Ignorance is ignorance, and bliss is bliss. (laughs) With ignorance, in fact, uh, providing the very fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. Delusion manifests as an unknowing because of the lack of penetration or the concealment of the truth, the concealment of the real nature of things or the lack of penetration into the real nature of things. With this there's an absence of right or true understanding. And this is experienced as the mental blindness or mental darkness of delusion 
caused by a lack of careful and wise attention. This is really the root of all that is unwholesome. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. They're not our true nature, so to say. Just actually two of the many hues in the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So I'd like to go on now with exploring a few of the specific hues of the rainbow of emotional states and beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal uh, practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of maybe doubt or anxiety, worry, resistance, such as feeling like, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to, or maybe feeling like I can't be or I'm not sure if I can be with this experience. This maybe unfamiliar new experience or this old, very familiar experience or this strong emotional state or this pain in the body or at times maybe even with this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. And maybe there's a feeling of being frozen or caught or just simply unable to open, unable to receive the experience fully, deeply, with a mindful presence. From this perspective, fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment or blaming the critical mind if we take it up, if we believe it. I sometimes say if we put our money down and buy it and get on the train and ride that particular uh, trip. We come up with uh, ideas like it's his fault. It's because she or because they, etc. This fear turned inwardly can manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, self-criticism, feelings maybe of unworthiness or not being good enough or just not being enough, not doing it right or not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self not being right, not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us. And I'm sure if I went around and asked each person what that meant, everyone else, each person would have a different idea of what uh, it meant to be a perfect person. Really, all of this is based in fear. I'd like to offer you another approach uh, to perfection other than probably how most of us have been conditioned to think of what it means to be a perfect person. And this is from uh, the Taoist sage Zhang Tzu, uh, his definition of perfection. The mind of a perfect woman or man is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. 
It expects nothing. It reflects, but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect woman or man can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught in and identifying with the mind of judgment, of doubt, of blaming, of criticism, inwardly in relationship to ourselves, and maybe outwardly in relationship to others, which is actually often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's lurking underneath. I think that often we're afraid of the fear, afraid to look at it directly, especially maybe when we've taken a peek and it might not have been so easy. Years ago in a retreat that I was sitting, one of my teachers told me uh, when I came in and fearfully reported the experience of fear, he said, His response to my fearful reporting of fear was, fear is just fear. Well, when I first heard this from this particular teacher, my inward response was, well, that's easy for you to say. (laughs) Obviously, in that uh, inner response, there was a taste of resistance and some irritation with these words. But eventually, I began to see that, in fact, Fear is just fear. As we gently, open-heartedly persevere with our practice of mindfulness and concentration based in kindness towards ourselves, we begin to be able to meet and to receive fear, to come close to it, look it in the eye, so to say, and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it, and not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. The 12th century Persian poet Hafiz has this to say about fear. Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. As we get stronger, as our mind and our heart gets stronger and our concentration and mindfulness muscles develop, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine, not me, not I. I am not a fearful person. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we can see and know, and many of which we don't know and may never see. It may be a moment of very intense experience, But when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, 
we begin to understand that it's clearly not me and not mine. And it's not that the energy of fear will never appear again. We learn to be steadfast, to stand in the fear, to lose our fear of fear itself, and to begin to see it clearly, see through it, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. And a poem by the poet Wendell Berry regarding fear. I go among the trees and sit still. All my stirrings become quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. And I just, I'm going to interrupt the poem. It's something we can practice sitting right out there by the birds. I just recognize that today. (laughs) Very practical, actually. Then, and Wendell Berry goes on, and then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. The Buddhist teachings offer us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been trained, most of us have been brought up, how we've been conditioned, how we've been patterned. It doesn't work to ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. They just reappear. Putting a tight lid on emotional states actually blocks, it actually deadens our sensitivities and it keeps the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course it's not about blindly acting out or blindly believing afflictive emotions. This is like watering uh, and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. Nor is this practice about purposefully, as I've already mentioned, dredging up and then miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught up and swept away in them. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience. An intimacy of connection based in kindness with a very focused and mindful attention. With a mindfulness-based practice, this intimacy is in the spirit of investigation 
in the spirit of exploration without pushing away or pulling away from experience or without desiring it to be different. So I'd like to take a a bit of a look now at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, very powerful energy. And from this perspective, it actually can be quite seductive. Quite some time ago, I knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached and very identified with her anger. And in fact, spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt very strong and powerful in the anger. But unfortunately, she was not a happy person at all. She was kind of like a porcupine. People would begin to get close to her and then they'd feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of her anger and they'd move away from her. So she was a very lonely person actually. And yet so identified in her mind uh, as an angry person and so afraid that she would lose the lose herself meaning lose her energy and her power lose the fuel for her life if she let go of the anger i think what's often overlooked is the disastrous effects of anger the harm that anger does to oneself The first person hurt is always the person who's angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is tight, it's agitated, it's narrow, it's constricted. The quality of awareness changes with anger. Clear seeing and any perspective vanishes. One often feels quite restless, quite driven. Nothing is satisfying. Sleep can be very difficult. The body is quite tense. And with anger, the sense of self looms very large, and so does the sense of the other. I think that one of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a very, quite a sharp separation between self and other. It's as though a line's been drawn that isn't to be passed, that isn't to be crossed. With each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's both amazing, simple, and difficult to see is that irritation anger, fear, rage, hate develop from a momentary unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. Again, pointing to the totally, that went unnoticed in a very, you might notice it to some degree, but that went 
uh, unmindfully noticed, not carefully noticed. Again, pointing to the conditional nature of afflictive states of mind. And the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware, mindfully aware, of anger or any other afflictive mind state depends on the quality, the focused strength and depth of our mindful, concentrated attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger is not solid. It's made up of many, many different components. Thoughts, stories, spinning out, spinning, spinning, spinning out. A specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone and various changing bodily sensations. With all of this coming and going, arising and passing. So in working with this, as soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger or fear or self-judgment or doubt or greed or clinging, expectation, disappointment. As soon as you see the, the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of any of these states of mind, it's very helpful to try to let them go. Just let them drop away. Give them what I call no mind. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger. They're also feeding the anger. They're like fertilizer to the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention then directly into the sensations in the body. Feeling the emotion directly and in itself. Without the story, what are you feeling? Well, maybe heat. Tightness, pressure, heaviness, contraction, vibration. Where is it? And very important, how is it changing? Notice the mind. In this case meaning, at this point, notice what your relationship is to these sensations. I think this is a very important point. Notice what your relationship is to these sensations. Is there resistance? More contraction? Really give this your best attention. Feel it, see it, know it. Is there interest grounded in kindness? Grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body? Take a look. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience. If the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit with it. Do some walking meditation. 
You might even walk a little bit faster than you usually do. Bring your attention directly into the body with the walking. Or you might open up to the natural world outside, the expanse of the fields, the trees in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky. Really take an interest. Notice the birds, the insects, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, and in the body, and maybe also in the breath, in the rising and falling. In those moments of a connected, present moment attention, afflictive emotion disappears. It isn't present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is amazing. Really beyond compare in a quietly wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience in and of itself and a clear mirror of ease for us. And an appropriate way to deal with afflictive emotion that might be too strong to sit with at any given time. Again from Nisargadatta Maharaj who, as some of you know, uh, often taught in dialogue with his students. A student asked him, what is the real cause of suffering? And Nisargadatta responded, self-identification with the limited Sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It's the mind bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states, which can be a considerable amount of energy at times, that energy doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages such as power or pleasure or status or prestige or recognition. With a clear, non-self-absorbed, concentrated and mindful attention based in kindness. Therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, greed, attachment, sadness, judgment, etc. And we'll talk about this a little bit more at the end of the talk. Right now I'd like to explore for just a bit of time the wanting mind. 
states of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. Classically unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment in the mind is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision's obscured. When our mind and heart are clouded, when we're caught in the energies of greed and attachment, we're blinded by desire. We've all heard that term, blinded by desire. I think a blatant and current example of this is that with greed really being the root uh, of the current worldwide economic crisis, people blindly acting out of enormous greed, causing enormous personal and global suffering. And this is rooted in the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project into the future, for instance, hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need to get and how we think things need to be in order for us to be contented, in order for us to be at ease in life. The thoughts that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it won't, that in fact it can't. And there are actually healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. All desire is not a bad thing. For instance, in part, it's what got you here to this retreat. In light of our exploration this evening, I'd like to share a prayer that some of you have heard uh, from me at another time, a personal practice, I was told, of Mother Teresa's. And it was uh, sent to me or given to me um, by a friend. And uh, it starts off, uh, deliver me, O Jesus, but I thought for our our conditions here, our practice, I'd say, uh, deliver me, O Dhamma. Deliver me, O Dhamma, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular. From the desire of being humiliated, from, um, from, excuse me, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being respected, suspected, not respected, suspected. So the uh, practice, the prayer of what many people uh, feel is, was a, is a saint, an honest saint <laughs> with that practice. 
soon after I received this uh, practice, a friend called and I, I read it to him over the telephone. And his response was, oh my God, have I got a lot to do. (laughs) True, it's true. We have a lot to do. But actually, every time I read this, I find it really quite inspiring and quite quite a teaching. I think many of us can become quite attached uh, to getting or trying to keep uh, certain objects of our desire and expend an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to or to get something back or we can spend an enormous amount of time and energy uh, trying to keep some experience or someone from changing and maybe even here in retreat. Maybe the particularly wonderful sitting that you had the other day. Or maybe even a sit or a particular period of practice that you experienced on your last retreat or even on a retreat some years ago. It's really the contraction, the clinging, the attachment, the self-centeredness the identification around desire, that is the problem. I think that we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. So a really good question you might ask yourself once in a while is, how driven am I by my desires? A simple and quite mundane personal experience regarding this. Some years ago, I was at a retreat center in New Mexico, here, that uh, an hour and a half or so from here, that has some uh, of the most wonderful flower gardens that I'd uh, ever seen. And as I was walking along next to uh, one of these gardens, I noticed a very sweet smell. So I followed my nose to where the smell was coming from. It was to a particular flower. And I got down very close to the flower and really took in the smell. Very present, aware of the pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go on and do something else. Uh, But all I wanted to do was stay there and continue experiencing that sweet smell. So with that next moment of clinging and not being uh, willing to let go and to just go on, uh, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was completely gone. And I was experiencing a tightness in the body and a degree of burning in the heart and the mind. But I got up and walked away because I had to do something, so I went to do what uh, needed to be done. But there was still a clinging to the sweet smell, even though it was completely gone from my field of experience. I was attached to the memory of it. I was wanting it back. I was walking along planning when I could get back to that garden, imagining how nice it would be uh, later on when I finally got back there. 
what a moment ago had just been a moment of pleasantness was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering. And it happens very quickly if we're not mindful. As we spoke about a few evenings ago, to sustain and deepen in and with our practice, to really see things as they are. Two of the most essential qualities of mind and heart that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. As we begin to see and know greed and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, stress, a burning, burning desire. For many people, I think there's often some confusion, delusion, that this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment feels good. It's even sometimes confused with love. Until we begin to see and know it clearly. What is ease? What is happiness really? It's the release from the tension, the pressure, the burning of wanting, of desire. And even more important, a moment of the release from the stress of attachment. A moment of release from the stress of clinging. Liberation through non-clinging. The Buddha talked about everything burning. And this is from his words. The eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And he goes on and on through each of the six sense doors this way. And then he went on to say, burning of what? Burning of desire. Burning of hatred. Jealousy. Fear. Burning with the fire of confusion. Some years ago I found a recipe and at the risk of giving you a recipe that you already have and maybe cook up occasionally, I'd like to share this recipe with you. It's called a recipe for unhappiness. And the ingredients are one cup of what is, one cup of inability to accept what is, three tablespoons of complaints, one teaspoon of light whining, quarter pound of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable, one bunch of actual reality, one pint of idealized worldview, two teaspoons of perfection, and four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. And here's what you do with the ingredients. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. (laughs) 
add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends. But be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. <laughs> in a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then, try to reattach leaves in the exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add to what is an inability to what is, add it to what is an inability to what is, inability to accept what is, and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form. <laughs> Garnish with minced envy and serve immediately. And um, another uh, similar teaching, similar and dissimilar. In, this is from Nan Shin, the Chinese sage Nan Shin. He says, By not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. The Buddha offers us another recipe. The recipe of cultivating a strong and clear concentration, mindfulness, and investigation grounded in kindness. That really meets the experience of the moment and sees it clearly just as it is. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught up or swept away or overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them and see their nature, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. One, one way may be not your usual way that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And this is from uh, the Vimalakirti Sutra, which is a Mahayana Sutra. <clears throat> Flowers like the blue lotus, the red lotus, and the white lotus do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so, the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. Now for me, when I came across this teaching, it was important that time, quite important actually. The teaching is really an acknowledgement that as human beings we experience many strong and difficult energies, the mud banks of passions. It's not that something's gone wrong. 
And so not to pretend to ourself or to others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our path. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people potent aspects of the process of awakening. With these passions, so to say, being transformed through practice, into what are sometimes called nectars or Buddha wisdoms. Afflictive emotions or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, transform, transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional energies are digested, we could say, into wisdom. So I'd like to just look at a few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self, with no self-grasping, transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The heart, the mind, reflecting clearly. And it's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of a clear, discriminating awareness. Sadness, without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting or transforming into the heart of metta and great compassion. Fear without self is digested into the great strong heart of metta, compassion and equanimity, bringing us the capacity to connect without fear and without judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to let go. We learn to relinquish what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness. The place of coolness and luminosity in our mind and heart. The place of freedom from the burning, the end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing needing to be added. Nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. It's just enough. This moment is just enough, just as it is. And we begin to know through our own experience the liberation that's immediately available in any moment. Liberation 
through non-clinging. In closing the talk this evening with uh, a poem called Hokusai Says. And some of you uh, certainly may know uh, Hokusai was a Japanese painter and his most famous painting is of this huge wave, one big wave, and down under the wave that the wave's coming over, it looks like uh, almost like fingers trying to grab. And underneath the wave is a little boat with people in it, probably fishermen. And the poem is called Hokusai Says. It's by Roger Keyes, the poem. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. (laughs) He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He said, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit together for just a moment or two.